Welcome, everybody, to episode seven of the Juhu Roadshow On Ramp podcast. This is Monday, uh, November 27th, 2017. Hope everybody had a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, we did here in the Hunt House. Um, and uh, uh, the On Ramp, just as a reminder, On Ramp is a supplementary podcast to my primary show, which is the Juhu Roadshow, which you can find exclusively on Patreon. That's P A T R E O N dot com forward slash j u h u it's uh the road show is is um it's a podcast where i go around and 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 have fantastic visits with interesting people of all kinds athletes artists actors um musicians um just interesting people um so if you want to catch that it's patreon.com forward slash j u h u um in episode six uh i think i kind of wrapped up what happened my time in Roswell and, and, um, and then moving back up to Farmington, um, Farmington, New Mexico, KOBF TV. I went back there and, uh, took the morning anchor job, um, which I really enjoyed. I, I was going back to, was going back to a place I had already worked before. I was comfortable with, um, people that I was comfortable with, um, and, uh, just had a, a huge, uh, a new baby at that time. My son Lance was born down in Roswell. So it was an exciting time. Um, and I, you know, I, I did the news director thing for a while and built that station up and it was a lot of fun, but I was ready for something new just because we just, we weren't digging Roswell all that much, but, um, went back up to Farmington to KOBF TV in about June or I think it was June of 2001, uh, got back into the groove of things quite quickly, was enjoying the morning show. Um, and, uh. Then something very fascinating happened, um, something that we're all aware of, something that uh, shook the entire world. And, and I, I just want to share with you, from my perspective, what it was like to be in the news business um, when September 11th happened, and um, especially what it was like for me being on the anchor desk. So I remember, I remember very specifically coming in that morning. It was a Tuesday morning. Um, I came in and, you know, I, I went to bed fairly early because I had to get up early. I usually got up around two o'clock in the morning to go into the station. And um, I go into the station and kind of getting everything ready. I'm, I'm the only one there for a couple of hours. And it's, it was interesting because I was watching, I always kind of watch the sports. You know, I was a, a jock in high school and college, as you're aware. And, and so I was really into, you know, checking up on the sports and stuff. And something fascinating that people forget about that time was Denver had this unbelievable receiver named Ed McCaffrey. Um, I had interviewed him um, a couple of years before that. Really nice guy. And, of course, his son, as any of you that follow football know, his son, um, oh, my goodness, I can't remember his first name right now. Uh, was it Sean? Sean McCaffrey? Anyways, he was a, he was a stud at, at Stanford, and now he plays for the Panthers, I think, um, the Carolina Panthers. Uh, anyhow... Ed McCaffrey was a just a, an unbelievable receiver for the Denver Broncos. Well, that Monday night, the Broncos were playing on Monday Night Football, and Ed, his dad, Ed McCaffrey, took a, a, a just a vicious shot and and broke his leg quite severely, like one of those, you know, one of those Joe Theismann, Willis McGahee type, you know, wow, I didn't think our body could bend that way, kind of, you know, kind of breaks. 
And uh, it was it was a really bad break, and it ended McCaffrey's career. And most people don't remember that because of what happened the next morning. So, anyways, I'm getting ready, and I I go on, and I and I I do my cut-ins, and I do one. I usually did one. It's like 6:45 or 6:50 Mountain Time, which would have been you know 8:45, 8:50 Eastern Time. And so I did my cut-in, and. Um, and then, you know, you go back to your desk and we have a, an AP software, Associated Press software that, you know, stories pop up as they're reported. They just kind of keep popping up and you kind of have this timeline of stories. And I, I, I will never forget um, the first one that popped up. It was right after I did my cut in and um, I sat down at my desk and right right then it popped on the AP and it was a single line. There are reports that a plane has flown into one of the Twin Tower buildings. That's all it said. And I still have that up in my safe. Um, I printed that out, is that, that singular report. And then right after that, obviously, the breaking news thing started happening. And, um, and, and that story started to unfold in front of everybody in the world. But it was an interesting time to be in the news business because, you know, you're so fascinated by what's going on and you're... You know, you're trying to you're always trying to figure out, you know, how can we make this how can we make this local? But with that, it was so different because it was it was so much bigger than than normal. And if I remember right, that cut in that I did at 650 was the last cut in that we did at KOBF for, I think, four days, uh, maybe five, um, which was which was odd it was it was strange for us to not be on the air but you know obviously network network is control is in control of the content for the most part and then you know then it goes to affiliates and they have their cut-ins um so you know you had network nbc and then kob and albuquerque would cut into that and then when kob cut in for their market kobf would cut in for our market and that's usually how it works. And then the sales department, that's how the station makes money is they sell advertising during those cut-ins. Well, you know, that was just another side effect of what happened that day is, you know, the stations didn't, no station around the country made any revenue for a four-day period, five-day period, because it the, the news was on nonstop. Uh, and then, you know, you're just sitting there and it was kind of weird uh, you know, I think for the general public, it was a helpless feeling, but especially for the news departments, it was a helpless feeling because you couldn't, there was, there was nothing you could do to alarm people or to, uh, you know, to, to touch, to, to reach out to your, to your audience and, and speak to them, um, to share stories. Uh, you know, it just, you felt helpless as a journalist, not being able to journal and report and file stories. And so it was just it was a it was a very very um, disconcerting time. It was a very um, it was a confusing time. It was a scary time, and, and you know. And then of course we all just sat there, and in in a newsroom you've got four or five televisions with every different station on, so that you can kind of keep track of what everybody was doing. And and you know by I would say ten or eleven in the morning, everybody that was everybody that was part of the news department or sports for that matter or engineering or any technical side of it we were all just there huddled around TVs watching and it was it was just such a it was such a crazy time to be in the news 
and and I I just remember sitting there doing that cut in, um, and walking back to the desk and and that first report coming across and then the rest of it is, is history as they say. But it was it was something I'll never forget. And I I you know I kept a lot of those little uh, stories and and newspaper clippings and magazines and stuff um, for my kids. I think. Um, just a couple of days after all that happened, Time came out with uh, when Time magazine was still a print magazine. Uh, I think it still is. Um, but it was the only time that it ever had a black border because it's always got a red border. Um, but Time magazine came out with a black border and I have that. But I just kept all that stuff to, to share with my kids and, and um, you know, let them know about that. Um, on, a, on a weird uh, semi-related note, but not necessarily related to the news. Not too long ago, um, I took uh, I had a, a, a screening of my of my new documentary, Addicted to Porn, Chasing the Cardboard Butterfly. We did a screening in Oklahoma City, and I took my son with me to um, to do the screening in Oklahoma. And um, there, there was a wonderful lady that set all that up. Her name was Vicki Harris Wyatt. She's a she's a um, a therapist out in in Oklahoma City. And she she set up the screening, and she invited Lance and I to stay with her family. And so, one of the things that um, I wanted to do while we were out there was I wanted to take Lance to the Oklahoma City bombing site. I just think that's such a it's an important part of our history. It's ugly. It's an ugly part of our history, but it's important. And you know, it's it's good to share those things with your with your kids and teach them about them and talk to them talk to them about it. But uh, we pulled into town, and, and Vicky had suggested we come to her office, so we did. And when we got there, she was in session. Now, her she shared an office, an office space with her husband, who was an attorney. And so he comes out, and uh, he, he's such a nice guy, very pleasant guy. He comes out and, and uh, introduces himself, and, and um, you know, we told him who we were and why we were there. And, and he said, well, Vicky's in sessions. He'll be out in a little bit. And I said, okay, well, in the, in the, in the meantime, I'm going to take my son over to the bombing site and, and show him the, the Oklahoma city bombing memorial. And he said, okay, well, it's only about two blocks. And I said, okay, well, we'll go check it out. We'll be back. We'll be back. And he says, well, why don't I come with you? Oh, that was great. Cool. You know, it, any kind of insight, would be nice, especially from a guy that, that lives there and, you know, is only two blocks away from the, from the memorial. That would be fantastic. So we walk over and as we're walking, he's kind of telling us a little bit about, you know, what it was like to be in Oklahoma City that day and, and, you know, what, what the fallout was like and, and the ripple effect of everything. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's dawning on me that, wow, this, this guy knows quite a bit about this event. Um, and so I said, well, I said, it's, it's, I mean, this is amazing, all the stuff that, you know, it, it, I mean, it really seems like you're in tune with what happened. And he said, well, I don't tell a lot of people, but uh, I was actually Timothy McVeigh's attorney. So this guy, the, the sweetest guy in the world, um, uh, and an attorney was actually one of the seven members of Timothy McVeigh's defense team. So we got not only, I mean, we got like the most amazing insight into that that entire event and then you know what happened afterwards and and the trial and 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 uh his job this particular gentleman's job as part of the defense team was the bomb and so he was telling us about what he learned about the bombs he went to northern ireland to talk to them about how they make bombs 
um, and and you know some of the some of the insight that he was sharing of what happened um, as part of that explosion and and showing us things you know like um, across okay so there there was the federal building and then right next to the federal building was uh, oh my goodness what was what kind of building was it beforehand uh, textile building or something I can't remember what kind of building it was but it was right it was right next to um, it was right next to the federal building that that uh, exploded. Uh, and so we're, we're walking. And by the way, if you've never been, it's the most beautiful memorial and, and thought that the thought and the design is just, it, it's just so beautiful and it, it's so poignant. Um, so if you ever get a chance, if you're ever anywhere near Oklahoma city, take the extra time. It's not hard to get to. It's not, it, it doesn't cost anything and it doesn't take a lot of time unless you want to take time. Um, but walk around that memorial and just soak it in because it's it's and and you, you know what what really surprised me is as we were getting closer to Oklahoma City, I asked Lance about that and you know this is my son's a junior in high school makes good grades is pretty you know pretty smart kid he had no idea what the Oklahoma City bombing was because they never they they never said anything about it in in school. Public school does not teach about the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, is it is it an ugly part of our history? Yes, but it's an it's an important part of our history, and I and I think kids should learn about it. Anyways, he had no idea about it, so I was shocked by that. And it, it's worth going if you can go. But anyhow, so the federal building was in this one location, and right next to it was this other textile building or or factory or something of some kind. Anyways. Um, this this gentleman, this attorney that was giving us the tour, he uh, we're standing there at the memorial, and they have now turned that textile building that was next door into the Oklahoma City bombing museum, and I'll tell you more about the museum in a second. But he showed us like six floors up, five floors up, this this little mark that if if you didn't know to look for it, it'd be hard to see. But it was like this little semicircle mark, and he says, "You see that mark up there?" And I'm and trying to find it. He's like, oh, see, it's right next to this, right above that. And finally, we spotted it. He said, that is where the rim of the tire of the um, rider truck that had all the explosive, that's where the rim of the tire hit. So the rim of this tire shot probably 200 yards across and five stories up and hit the side of this building and, and put a put a dent in it where the rim hit it. Um, the motor of the building, or I mean, the motor of the rider truck was found almost two blocks away. That's how far a motor flew through the air and landed in front of a hotel. But, uh, I mean, just, it, it was just, it was, it was, it was eerie to get that kind of insight, but it was, uh, it was just so fascinating to learn and, and to hear his take on McVeigh. Another thing I didn't know about McVeigh is McVeigh had actually won a medal of valor of some kind in Desert Storm that was actually pinned on him by Schwarzkopf himself. So he was a good soldier. He was just, um, he was just, uh, he was upset by by the way things were being handled in his opinion, and and so he took drastic measures. But uh, we walked through that museum, and man, that is. That that was something else. Um, there is there's only one recording of any kind uh, of the Oklahoma City bombing, and that was there was a water a water commission meeting that was taking place, and they always recorded the the meetings so that, that they could write down the the details and the minutes of the of the meeting. 
And so you walk into this room in the museum, and it's, it's set up exactly like the Water Commission meeting, exactly like it. And so it's like you're standing in the meeting. Um, the table is there. The chairs are there. The room looks exactly like the, the Water Commission meeting looked. Uh, and the, there's a recorder sitting on the table. So you walk in this room, and you're standing there. And the Water Commission meeting is going. And, and apparently the, the commissioner, the lady that ran the Water Commission, she uh, was very prompt. And so she started right at 9 o'clock. And so the meeting is going. And, and by this point, you kind, of, you, you kind of know. I mean, you know what time the bomb went off, which was 9.02 in the morning. And um, so you're standing there and you're listening to this Water Commission meeting. And you, you become more tense and more tense and more tense because you're just waiting for this to happen. And so um, they're talking, 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 and then all of a sudden, you just hear this this unbelievable sound on the recording, and then the lights start flickering in the room that you're standing in, and it, I mean, it's just so surreal because of the realism, uh, and 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 it's also it's also creepy because you can hear you can actually hear. So when the when the when the bomb went off. The explosion went upward, and that sent the floors rippling up, and then they fell down on top of each other. And and actually, when when they were going through the rubble, the the floor, each floor, um, which is you know ten feet, each floor was compounded to the size of your fist to your elbow. That's and and everything in between it, and so that means desks. Um, you know, chairs, human beings, everything that was on that particular floor was compacted to the space, the size of space between your fist and your elbow. So you're listening to this, to this explosion. And and by this point, you kind of understand what happened in the explosion where the floors went up and then they fell down. So you hear this explosion and you hear, so like, you can hear the, 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 the floors rippling upwards and then falling down. It was, it was unbelievable. Um, but uh, just walking through the museum was, uh, it was, it was I, I can't really put it into words, but uh, they did a fantastic job with it. It was just, it was uh, humbling. It was, um, it was eerie. It was sad. Um, but you all at the same time you just appreciate what the city went through what the people um the, what the people who helped the the rescue the rescue people the volunteers the people that just ran in there but there were a couple of things in there that 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 stuck that stuck with me like there was a woman who was trapped and her arm was trapped and this gentleman this doctor had to actually he crawled in and cut her arm off with a pocket knife and some some nylon string, and they had the string and the knife that he actually did it with in there. And you're just like, holy shit, that's that's crazy. Um, and then the car that they that they caught Timothy McVeigh in, um, they actually have the car there in the in the museum. So it's just such a such a surreal experience. So if you ever get a chance, you should go to that. Sorry, I got sidetracked there, but I was talking about KOBF, but. Um, uh, anyhow, so after the September 11th thing, you know, obviously the, the nation was changed a little bit. Um, our perspective was changed a little bit. The way we treated each other changed quite a bit. Um, and even the news we reported changed quite a bit. Um, but, uh, 
you know, you had to just keep plugging along. And so we did. You just keep telling stories and doing things. And and um, and uh, I stayed at KOBF for, uh, let's see, that was 2001. Um, and then uh, stayed there for a couple of years. In April of 2003, my daughter was born, Abby. She was born. And uh, at that time, um, I, I was watching... I was watching, how do I say this? I was watching lesser, lesser reporters get greater reward. And it, it was really starting to bother me. Like people that I had hired were moving fast. People I had hired in Roswell or people that I knew were hired, at, you know, after I was a news director were moving up faster than I was. And, and I wasn't sure why. It really bothered me. I mean, I eventually learned why, and I'll have to decide if we're going to get into that or not. But um, I started to become, I started to become um, just disgruntled, I guess, because of how hard I was working and the success I was having. I mean, you know, every year I was winning a lot of awards. I won News Reporter of the Year three times in four years. The only year I didn't win it was down when I was in Roswell because I wasn't eligible because I was a news director. And I was becoming more irritated by watching this happen because I wanted to move up too. I wanted to go to bigger stations and I wanted to, to keep, keep going. You know, that's kind of how it works is you, it's, you have these markets like New York and LA are number one and number two. And, and obviously, you know, you, as the city gets smaller, the market size gets smaller. And there's like 200 and something market sizes. I think Albuquerque was number 48. And so you're, you know, you want to move up and move up because once you get to large, larger markets, you, you, it's just cooler. It's like making it to the big leagues, you know, and like one of the Tom Joel's, um, was, uh, a main anchor in Albuquerque for quite some time. Really great guy. Cussed like a sailor, um, off camera. Nobody knew that about him, but he was such a super guy. Um, you know, this guy was making over 300 a year and had like eight to 10 weeks of vacation. I mean, that's, that's a good job. That's a really good job. And, and he was good at it. And I felt like I could, I felt like I had that kind of potential to do that, to be that good, you know, and, and, and I was getting frustrated because I I wasn't moving up and I continued to do well for the station and, you know, do good stories and win them awards and people appreciated, um, they appreciated who I was in, in my hometown. They watched my news program in the mornings and they liked my stories and, you know, I did positive things to help families out and, and help people out. And I just wasn't, I wasn't moving at the pace I thought I should be. And so I started getting very disgruntled. And so I actually started a, a video production company. And you're going to hear a lot more about this company um, in the coming episodes. But Time and Tide Productions was the name of my company. And I started it. And I went to, I went to my, my bosses and I said, look, do you guys mind if I do some stuff on the side for my own company? Um, you know, wedding videos or sports videos, things like that. And they said, no, it's fine. So I started this company and I started doing things concurrently. So I would do my job at KOBF, you know, in the morning till about one or two in the afternoon. And then I would work on these other projects that I was doing. Um, you know, like I said, I would shoot some weddings, um, or I actually started getting some industrial jobs. Like I, I think one of my first jobs was, um, for Chevron Texaco in, in Wyoming. They asked me to clean something up for them and re-edit it. So I was like, yeah, cool. And so 
that's how that's how my company actually started was doing these things and doing them concurrently while I was working at, at KOBF. So I did that for about a year. And then, you know, I started my company kind of started growing and I started getting more jobs. And so I started really looking at, OK, is it possible for me to do this on my on my own as my career and leave television, which I never thought I would do because I loved telling stories, but I had just become so disenchanted with the process. The storytelling and being involved with people and going out into the... I mean, I've got so many stories of, of, of encounters I had doing the news, and, and I'll get into those, you know, in time. But I just, I loved that part of it. I loved being on the air and doing that. But the corporate side of stuff, I just didn't, I didn't care for anymore. And it, it wasn't fair. There were things that were happening that weren't right and they weren't fair. And I just didn't care for them. And so I started really looking at, can I, can I run this Time and Tide Productions thing and not be on the news anymore? And I spent, you know, I, I did it for about a year concurrently. And I would say six months into it is when I really started thinking about, you know, can I do this? And um, it, was, it was in the fall of 2003 that um, I think it was in the fall of 2003 that I decided uh, I, it was time to it was time to really consider leaving. And I got uh, I got invited by some some cowboys to go out to Saboba, California and shoot the Indian National Finals Rodeo. And um, not only to shoot the rodeo and put some highlight tapes together or some highlight movies together for anybody that was interested in buying them, but also to shoot some some promotional videos for the announcer and one of the bullfighters. And then I, another gentleman asked me to do one for him as well. He was a pickup, a pickup man. So, um, so that trip went really well, went out to Saboba, shot this rodeo stuff. And when I came back, I decided that it was, it was time to leave KOBF and, and leave the news uh, for good because I, I felt like, okay, and, and it was scary because you have to remember, uh, you know, I had a I had a boy that was that was two and I had a daughter that was just born. And so it's like really scary leaving a job where you get a paycheck every week to try to do something where you're not sure what you're going to get. And, you know, I think that's the risk of everybody that starts their own business faces. But uh, but um, it was it was extraordinarily scary for me. Uh, just because the the unsurety of it all. So um, so in November of 2003, uh, I made a decision on what to do. And so um, unfortunately, we're going to have to get back into that uh, when we come back in episode eight next Monday. So let me tell you how this is going to work from now on. Um, every Monday, we're going to we're going to post a new episode of the on ramp. Um, and that will be more about, you know, what I've, what I've done and, and the stories I have about my career and, and, um, you know, just kind of getting to know me as the host of the other podcast, the Jew who Roadshow. And then also every Monday, we'll let you know who's coming up that Friday on the Roadshow, And, and of course, encourage you to go check that out and subscribe. The, the Jew who Roadshow is a subscription based, uh, podcast, $5 a month. Uh, and you get access to every show that we do past, present and future. So if you missed one, uh, once you become a, a subscriber, you can go back and listen to every show that we've done. 
Um, and I'm really excited to tell you about uh, the show we have coming up this Friday, December 1st. Um, on the road show this Friday is Tim Cox, who is probably probably one of the greatest Western realism artists of all time. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about um, equal to, if not greater than, Frederick Remington, Charles Russell, um, Bill Owen, uh, some of these guys that have just done these unbelievable paintings over the years. And, you know, Western realism might not be your forte, but if you appreciate art of any kind, if you appreciate passion or if you appreciate ability, talent, um, you'll appreciate Tim Cox. And so this Friday, um, we're going to be doing the Juhu Roadshow with Tim Cox. Um, one thing I would suggest to you is if you're going to subscribe and listen to that, which I hope you do, um, go to timcox.com, T-I-M-C-O-X.com, and look at some of his artwork before we, before we do the show. Um, so you can kind of visualize what he's talking about. And, and uh, it, he's such a sweet, humble person. And, and we talk about, you know, how he got into art and how he sees the world. And then, you know, his approach to how he does a piece and, and the emotional involvement you get with these characters. Because, he, you know, he said he'll spend uh, 12 to 14 hours a day with these, with these pieces and they can take months to finish. And so it's just a fascinating conversation. Um, whether you're into Western art or not, it's a fascinating conversation into the mind of an artist, into the process of an artist, and an artist at that level. And when I say that level, when you see one of his pieces, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. So to listen to that program uh, and any others that we've done on the Juhu Roadshow, you just go to patreon.com forward slash J-U-H-U. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash J-U-H-U. And click on Become a Patron. And for five bucks a month, you get to listen to every podcast that we do. And we've got some fantastic shows coming up in the future. Um, I think we've already got shows planned all the way through February and then more uh, more in the works after that. So uh, we'd love for you to come over and join us on the Juhu Roadshow uh, on Patreon. Again, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash J-U-H-U. Oh, and please be sure to uh, follow me on Instagram at the Justin Hunt. We also have a, an Instagram page for the Roadshow. It's The Juhu Roadshow. Um, of course, you can follow me at Twitter, uh, Juhu76 as well. And we have a Facebook page for The Juhu Roadshow. So be sure and check those out. That's going to do it for this, uh, this episode 7 of The On-Ramp. Can't wait to come back and visit with you next Monday and uh, tell you what, uh, what happened when I finally decided whether I wanted to stay in television or not. So um, that's it uh, for now. Uh, until next Monday. Uh, thanks to each and every one of you for listening. Have a fantastic week and an awesome day. Mm-hmm.